bitches bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. Guys, my voice is so bad. I still like it. <laughs> I feel like a 13-year-old boy going through puberty. Aww. Uh, I taught seven classes this weekend. Well, I, that'll do it. The last couple of classes, I was like, my voice was cracking in class. Aww. So that's been very fun. That sounds brutal. <laughs> Are these words of encouragement that have caused you such pain? Uh, yes, actually. Always words of encouragement. Um, also just a reminder to myself to use my diaphragm more when I speak and not just my mm-hmm. vocal cords. Gotcha. Well, that's hard when you're cycling, I'm sure. It's true. And like, I just pretend that it's like a big karaoke session and sing yeah, the whole time. Just like belting. <laughs> so it's like a yell, sing kind of situation. And like when you're playing Britney Spears, how can you not Totally. So. Stronger. What's your yeah. favorite? Bri- yeah. Nailed it. Stronger. <laughs> I also played Aqua this week. Oh my God. That's so yep. good. So I saw a fringe show uh, a couple of days ago where the guy did like random sketches and scenes and he did like a 20 minute bit just about Aqua that only a third of the audience got. But I thought it was the funniest thing ever. I <laughs> have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> They're like a early 2000s, late 90s band that did like you no know Barbie girl yeah oh yeah yeah I didn't play <laughs> no, Barbie girl in class I, I, did you I play Dr. Know. Jones no. I did play Dr. Uh, Jones oh my god I'm killing it two for two. Oh man Erica what's going on I have had the best professional week of all time of all time <laughs> okay at least of the past like five years wow great that's awesome yeah yeah, yeah, it's so I got new clients and then I got interesting work and then I realized I could charge and all of those came together and I was just like, holy fuck, there's like shit out there. So which I knew I kind of knew before, but now I'm experiencing it and it makes me it makes me very, very happy because now I'm like anything's possible yeah so you kind of found your sweet spot yeah nice. and i'm i'm riding the wave sweet yeah sweet. so amy you went to a fringe show went a couple yeah i yeah. love fringe awesome so fun yeah just been festival hopping great it's june's like big festival big month, festival month. month. yeah yeah lots yeah. going on yeah gonna hit up summer solstice later if it's not raining the indigenous uh, festival down in vincent massey park cool. and mm-hmm. yeah awesome All right, so let's get into it. This week in feminism, the Canadian government is facing mounting pressure to suspend its safe third country agreement with the United States amid concerns over child migrants being detained at the U.S. border. So at this point, we're all very familiar with the horrific situation taking place in the U.S. regarding migrants illegally crossing the border, and we fully acknowledge how awful that ongoing situation is and encourage people in the U.S. to call the representatives and senators to share their concerns and to go out and protest on the countrywide protests on June 30th. I think there are protests in every single state and in D.C. I think there. I think I saw there was over a thousand different protests wow. organized. So that's, that's amazing. Awesome. Um, the Safe Third Party Agreement, for those who don't know, um, and I just learned this myself, is based on the core principle that people seeking refugee protection must file their claim in the first safe country they arrive in unless they qualify for one of a few exceptions. The other core tenant is that Canada considers the United States a safe country for refugees. So that means that if an asylum seeker comes to Canada at an official border crossing from the U.S. and tries to then claim refugee protection, they will be refused entry and encouraged to make their claim in the U.S., which is a safe country from which they just came. The requirements for designating a country as safe are threefold. One, each country must comply with the United Nations Convention Against Torture. Two, the UN Convention on Refugees. And three, it must maintain a good human rights record. But critics of this agreement say that Canada should firstly never have signed on to the agreement, but also, given the situation in the US right now, Canada should simultaneously suspend the agreement. 
So this is uh, very, very contentious and has kind of gobbled up a bunch of time in the media and a little bit in the House of Commons, I think, this past week, which the House has officially risen for the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Amy, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think, you know, this, there, this is a really uh, key moment. There's probably been no better time to go after the safe third party agreement. There were calls last year um, around the um, travel ban, the Muslim uh, quote unquote ban in the U.S. And I think that those were actually very good grounds as well. The fact that someone could be deported back to their country of origin, sort of vitiating the fact that they had maybe even claimed asylum in the U.S., I think is pretty antithetical to the whole refugee immigration like system. Um, but I mean, with the s- circumstances as they are now, there's it's very clear. Like, I mean, the U.N. Has, has come out and said like this violates the rights of children. Um, the the separation from parents, um, it, like in and of itself, and it's been two thousand like migrants that have, um, like migrant children specifically that are now being detained. You know, I don't. I it's it's going to become a crisis. There's already a migrant crisis um, in the U.S. and in internationally as well. That like Canada needs to be able to respond. If you have a legitimate claim, it really shouldn't matter where you land or how you got to where you got. That's what I've always believed if someone has a legitimate claim they should be processed here um, according to our system but I mean it's been a convenient way for Canada to shirk its responsibility and download the task to the U.S. when not having to deal with people and we've talked about that on the podcast before and it's just it's really frustrating to see that play out now. I find it interesting that this comes on around the time that the U.S. also pulled out of the U.N. Human Rights Council. Mm. And um, there's, uh, my, my from what I see, that this, this sort of, the safe country, third country agreement, and that is somehow going to kind of play out in a way that it's still going to, like, continue to evolve I guess is what you could say because it seems to me that the U.S. wants to pull out of anything um, that would hold it accountable much like its leader (laughs) so yeah and uh, the Attorney General of the United States Jeff Sessions has said that they will no longer accept reasons related to gang violence and domestic violence as reasons to seek refugee Mm. status in Mm. the United States so if Canada is in this agreement, then people seeking asylum from th- for those reasons, are they technically in a safe place? Like they're being denied their refugee status. So do they just can they just come to Canada then? Or does the agreement still hold up? Yeah. Well, and that's why I think the the agreement is definitely, like, in question. Um, And same with the rates of um, applications that have been accepted have dropped, like, considerably since uh, Trump has come into office, which a lot of advocates and lawyers are saying is a sign that they're not being processed properly or accurately or with the full... Um, you know, the full effect of the UN Declaration on Refugees. Um, so to but me, that's like pretty clear that they're not getting a fair assessment and that would, I think, call into question whether or not they're actually holding up the declaration, which is the key tenant of the safe third party agreement. If that third party agreement goes away, Canada does not have the capacity to even process the claimants, I would assume. Well, and sure. that's probably why, like, they, like, the Trudeau government is like totally hands off with this. They've been quite, yeah. They've been sh- they've been shirking, they've been shucking and jiving past this responsibility <laughs> since they came into power. No, totally. Yeah, like I mean, if you think about how much surge capacity the government had to deal with to bring in all of those refugees a couple of years ago around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Um, the government worked overtime. Public servants worked insane hours. And like, uh, like, given the the frustrations with the pay system for those public servants, like they mm-hmm. didn't get paid for a very long time. They didn't receive compensation for that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, we don't have the capacity to deal with them. Like, yeah. And how do we how do we find that balance? Whereas, like, if we were to leave the safe third party agreement, how do we deal with that influx of people when we just 
can't. Right. And I mean, I we think can't. I think to some degree there's just like there needs to be a political will to spend the money and to attribute the resources. And so for everybody who wants to tweet and and der- like, you know, go off on how Trump is like the most vile person in the world for the zero tolerance po- policy, um, you also have to be um, holding quote unquote liberal leaders just as accountable for shirking their responsibilities as well because in Canada we certainly do detain people. Um, I to me I, I think it's really funny people think the separation is the worst of it, but the fact that people are detained at all and the conditions in which they're detained, like so what net now family I'm not so what, but I mean it's mar- it's like marginally better that families are detained together, but they are still detained with like very long time until they get the you know, where are all the d- people screaming about due process now right yeah, oh yeah. People, good yeah. point you know, good it's point. like people yeah. um you know don't like don't get access to um representation either that's really difficult to come by they're they're there for long periods of time by the time they do get a hearing you know it's it's very hastily done the other issue in canada uh, specifically is that we don't have enough people on the immigration and refugee board to assess the claims um and that's all stuff that trudeau could do with with a with certain degree of political will, but I mean uh, that's not there, and I think we have to pressure them on every level. It's it's not enough, as Erica says, to do away with the safe third party agreement. You have to offer like a proper immigration and refugee system that works on every level. And if we're not prepared to do that, I think we have to like take a long look at ourselves, or else we'll become just as immoral. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question for you two. Um, there seems to be a, a worldwide kind of migrant like crisis mm. from years and years back, probably about, I don't know, early 2000s, maybe mm-hmm. like it's kind of been building up. Um, why do you think that is? And where do you think like the whole U.S. border policy and Canada's implications are in that? I know big questions. I like it. Well, the issue in the for the like migrant uh, like migrants coming from the south into the states across the southern border is bec- like largely because of American interference in their I was domestic just about to say, yeah, and like a real like you know I, I mean it's economic crisis that's a big part of it and American intervention that's yeah. a part of that and well, rigging yeah. elections and like yeah and the fact that like particularly in South America we're at less. Less so, but definitely still in Central America, there's just an increasing number of dictators and fascists. Like Venezuela was kind of socialist before and like had like a really still kind of fucked up system. But like a friend of mine, his dad actually moved back to Venezuela because he supported Chavez. Mm -hmm. But now they just hold mock elections there, Mm -hmm. holding government officials hostage in offices because they could be killed. Like, the situation is just so extreme right now in South America. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of those cases, it's like the the American government has interests and has like propped certain governments up over others and has like benefited financially from, from the unrest or being on the side of certain people. And I mean, it is American foreign policy to be a hegemony in the region which means that they will it, it's their policy to interfere in these in in governments and the political process of countries in South America and Central America to further US interests this is not made up it's not like we're not talking conspiracy theories it w- it is it was their policy and i don't see how their policy has changed much mm-hmm. it may have been um, made a little bit m- more swa- like friendlier, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's still. I mean, those it's, ties run it's deep. It's true from everywhere, from yeah. like Haiti into exactly. like exactly, and then and then things. So, in the in an example of Haiti, like natural disasters, then like aggravate what is like an already existing like vulnerability. Um, the other reason is, I mean, it's really rich for someone like Jeff Sessions to say that gang violence is an issue when, like, the reason there is a lot of that sort of, uh, like, cr- like illegal 
whatever mar- like markets and, and activity is because of the American war on drugs, like suppressing and like, mm-hmm. you know, like anyway, the, that's also very well documented. We don't need to get into yeah. but like yeah. um, another example of an American policy that has like ravished a whole region. And that, like, yeah, you know, the war on drugs have ravished communities with communities of color. Yes. Communities within the U.S., communities of color. And also, we don't think about it, but um, but Central and South America and the Caribbean, for, you know, but in our sort of region. And it has been quite devastating. Also, I mean, there's also, we haven't even talked about, like, the IMF and the World Bank and their policies oh, yeah, no, and stuff sure, like that. that's the other thing. Then they come the, around yeah. and they say, well, now that you don't have all these things and we've reaped all of your natural resources, why don't we loan you some money? Yeah. On you know these like, exactly impossible it's quite conditions. a hustle yeah. actually I sure. gotta say <laughs> <laughs> it's a gangland hustle yeah. I'm just like wow a gangland hustle. <laughs> it really is episode title I, <laughs> I was just thinking that <laughs> oh, so sad. oh dear so moving on a recent report from the Lancet a British medical journal has concluded that when police officers in the United States kill unarmed black people, it damages the mental health of black Americans living in those states, which confirms a longtime worry of racial justice advocates. The mental health of white Americans was not similarly affected, the researchers found, nor were the negative health effects associated with police killings of unarmed white Americans or armed black Americans. The researchers contended that their study was a significant attempt to assess the measurable, if indirect, harms that police violence has inflicted on the broader psychological and emotional well-being of African Americans. So, Erica, are we surprised by these findings? No. (laughs) I thought we'd been talking about this. I I thought people were talking about this, but I guess I was wrong. Well, now that it's in a, like, reputable medical scientific journal. From Britain. From Britain. You know it's real. Well, and that's exactly my question (laughs) is that we knew it was true. Totally. We like, I mean, obviously not from personal experience, but like that's traumatic events. We follow Black Lives Matter. We read the stories about how these things affect these black communities. But yet we needed to have the fucking white people come in from with their study and tell the people that this is a real thing so that white people actually will believe it. We told you all about Trump way back in 2016. You didn't want to listen. We told you all about maternal health issues, um, like the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. That's really bad. White people and, I mean, just... Where where are we wrong? Maybe less woke people Mm -hmm. just need to realize that black people have agency over their own stories and their own experiences and... They are completely valid, and we need to listen to them. I mean, people have been talking about intergenerational trauma um, yeah. increasingly over th- the last few years, in whether um, in indigenous communities and in black communities, um, like specifically African American communities. It's like, you know, it's and it, and it, and there are there. I mean, there are studies if you want the receipts, but I think we very clearly see the impact of of those things. Um, the other most prominent story that a lot of people commented at the time um, was Erica Garner, Eric Garner's daughter, who died of a heart attack at 27. Yeah. And she, you know, a lot of people wrote at the time that, you know, her her health and, and what the stress she experienced and everything she did, not just from like his past, like seeing her father who was killed by police in 2014, like, you know, like seeing that and living through that experience, but also um, in her day-to-day advocacy and speaking like and working with other young people who had like experienced that, having to express that um, so publicly and like to be like an activist in that way and to like, like live through that on a daily basis was like what caused her death, like that she died at essentially the hands of racism. A lot of people opined that at the time. And I think, you know, it was probably seemed like a convenient headline <laughs> or or like you know a quippy thing to say but it's very real like i i know i for one like never 
doubted that that wasn't actually what what caused her death. Yeah, so now that we have, quote-unquote, scientific evidence that this is a real thing, that this trauma is real, do we think that this is going to have any impact on how police act, how police are trained, or public support of racial justice groups like Black Lives Matter? I think that um, it's like we talked about last week with mental health. Like, mental health... um, we've we've boiled it down to platitudes and um trauma that people experience especially that is experienced in communities of color won't be taken seriously because white people will feel in they'll be all in their feelings because they know they caused it Mm -hmm. so that's the problem is that you can never have a proper conversation with Mm -hmm. them like a real conversation Mm -hmm because they always get defensive because they know that in some way, shape or form, um, maybe not they individually, but they belong to a group um, and genetically belong to a group that that has wreaked so much havoc on communities of color. This is why you can't have a conversation there. You know, very smart brothers in this week had a, um, a title of, they had a, peace in the root and it was called it was called white people are cowards mm. and that's what they are they'll never admit to anything because they're cowards yeah i mean i think um it makes it made me think about um y- you know like I, I was seeing some tweets this week about um you know like parents saying well my kids now hearing all these stories of like in prison like you know they're white kid uh, of kids being detained, like taken and detained, and how do I explain that to my child? Or my child said that they are worried they're going to be taken as well, and how do we like? And like that—that that is really like sad that kids have to be confronted with that. But like, for a second, think about the fact that there, for so many racialized people, depending on what the circumstances, certainly for a lot of, um, you know migrant families and families who are from South America um, or have a history with immigration or maybe undocumented or whatever have those tough conversations every damn day and that is all contributing to you know a a, like a steady dose of trauma every day Um, or like um, it's certainly like not healthy for like not great for anyone's mental health and well-being absolutely like I've I've read so many stories about how black people have have to decide at what age they have uh, the talk with their yeah. children. Yes. And it's not the birds and the bees. It's the when you're confronted by a police officer, what do you do talk? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes or an angry neighbor who, you know, like you can't go to the doorstep to yeah. ask for help. Like yeah. And in some instances, that's like yeah. six, seven, eight years old. Yeah. And that's sad yeah it's 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 sad and like there's no way it doesn't distort your like mental health and well-being like how can you be truly free and happy if you have to think about that at every turn everywhere you go you're thinking about your safety yeah fear becomes embedded and um it becomes a way of your way of being and i can't see how it doesn't get passed on to be honest Mm -hmm. yeah so I so when we're talking about intergenerational trauma um, and the thing is, is that you can't we're so far from policymakers even taking this seriously mm-hmm. and even recognizing it because they like to play the um, I don't see color thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, like even our environmental minister, like we were saying, mm-hmm. does not even recognize the distortions between like environmental racism yeah Mm -hmm. and well yeah i mean i can't anticipate like there was going to be a healthcare policy soon that says you get extra counseling or like access to mental professionals that are like also racially sensitive and like not just like you're there to like tell a white person your feelings exactly um because we can barely get mental health coverage at all but like and and let alone anything that's like sen- like remotely sensitive from that perspective people also aren't trained in that 
Like there aren't the way, you know, a lot of folks are, are taught and educated. It's not with that sensitivity. Le- and, and it's not just mental health, it's physical health. Mm-hmm. Again, like in Erica Garner's case, it could be anything from heart problems to, you know, chronic illnesses that one would develop as a result of like chronic stress and fatigue or, ex- or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Right. And a trauma manifests in sleep disorders and it manifests itself in, you know, all sorts of uh, other ailments um, that may seem like ordinary. I mean, like there are, are different ailments that affect different segments of the population. And we don't know. I don't think we've sat down to process like, is there a reason why? that is right that people are more afflicted by by certain by certain things than others or more susceptible to certain disease than than in other um, segments of the population and what are the what are the connections with with the race and not just race but racism and and a lived experience and those health outcomes so that seems like forever away (laughs) So Serena Williams, as she gets ready for Wimbledon, said in an interview this week that the conversation about stopping domestic abuse shouldn't just center around women, but also men, and that education about domestic abuse should start when men are young boys. Quote, I think expanding the conversation to men and expanding the conversation to young boys, it's so important. This is a human rights issue. We should all be treated the same. We should all be treated equal. With domestic abuse, it doesn't care what color you are, what background you're from. It's important to get to the get the message out there to our young men, to our boys, to our daughters, to let that new generation and let that generation know that let's stop this, let's change this, let's create a better us. End quote. So, do you guys agree with Serena's rep- representation that only women and girls are being told how to end domestic violence? Hmm. Hard to say. I think that. I think one of our, our, when I say our, I would say the movement's um, flaws is that it doesn't talk to women, um, to youths in general. I think what happens is we, women have progressed and the men haven't. And maybe one of those ways to kind of bring them up to both to a certain understanding is to educate young boys. I'm not like, I'm not totally against the idea. I'm just saying. Yeah. So do you think Amy, that we don't talk to kids about domestic violence or I'm not sure. And I don't think that we talk to women about it per se. I think we like try to empower women in general, but I don't think that like people are having conversations with young girls about what like to look out for in certain relationships. I don't think we're having preventative like, like, yeah, like, this is part of your or what healthy relationships look right, like. right. I don't actually. So I don't think that's you a coming, good point. Do you yeah. Coming to think of it, yeah, we don't talk about domestic personal issues, like going through personal stuff. We don't. We don't really talk about it. We we don't talk to young girls, do we? Yeah, I I honestly don't think so. I mean, we talk about like. This is what like like rape stuff generally. Yeah, like we talk to them ex like after the fact. Sometimes, sometimes, (laughs) but we talk about it after the fact, after something's happened. Yeah, Yeah. and maybe that's the point that we don't talk to either girls or boys at all when they're like young, because most parents wouldn't, right? Because you just assume, I guess, that you're instilling in them values of respect and what have you and that that will translate into healthy relationships but i think that most parents don't want to talk to their kids about hard stuff well yeah like they just don't also like in most well not in most cases but i mean in the cases where like you're living in a household where there is domestic violence those are not the parents yeah yeah and you know what it looks like like as a kid in a home with domestic violence you know it's bad yeah but you may still grow up to replicate the behavior because you know it's what you know it's It's what you know it's familiar and it's learned even though you know and you're traumatized by it or whatever else um, it'd be an interesting conversation to see. And I don't, I don't remember if this was part of the Ontario sex ed curriculum, but what like healthy relationships more broadly. I mean, you can imagine, uh, parents kind of 
not wanting <laughs> sort of the state, as it were, to step in and tell, like, you know, have, like, kids on the watch. I think kids are already um, – because there was a, a thing in the 90s where, like, there was um, – more of like demonstrations either by police officers and there were commercials and help lines around like if you know if you see domestic violence or if you're you know you're there's upset in your home who to call and I know like that certainly gets like parents backs up because like now they're like kids are like gonna snitch on them but but in less of a you know scary way there is a way to have a conversation that as we said is a bit more proactive that like is about how do you have actually healthy relationships in general and where should that occur like those conversations that's the other thing because as you said if you i mean it's a a life skill like anything else they should teach it in school i agree um because like if you think about it you get job not job training but you get like yeah careers career planning which when i was in high school (laughs) which was many years ago was completely useless. It was such a joke of a did class. Did you do a computer test where they like? No. Do you do the like, and it matches you up with like different careers you could have. No, I no. I remember like circus performer was eerily towards the top of yours. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> do you juggle? No, I think it was more like, you know, how big's your ego, and do you like having uh, an audience? Uh, I think that's <laughs> what got them there. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, all of which is to say that careers is pretty useless. They could they could it's sub that one out. But it's <laughs> it's more like it should just be like planning for your future. Yeah, like, like other soft skills for sure. Because like, you know, there used to be home ec. You used to do shop. Yeah. You used to do like sewing, cooking, whatever. Like those we are life skills. Those. Sure. So make it yeah. like a life skills totally. class. Um, Maybe they should just have a life skills class. Yeah. Period. Up to every. Yeah, well, for every, like, outgoing, for every high school graduate, they should, as a means to graduation, they should have, like... They should should teach kids about paying taxes and how to, like, rent and budgeting. Like, those are actually important. I don't know. A good critique of that is to say that if you learn to read and you learn basic math, you, you should be able to do all of those things independently. They don't need to be, like, separately taught. But, like, giving people an awareness that you have to do those things yeah, is enough, I think. Um, which I don't know that there is enough of what actually living a career looks mm-hmm. like. I did co-op in high school, and I like that. I feel like more people should do that. The other thing they do in Ontario still is the volunteer hours. I don't know if you guys had that in your respective provinces. I'm from Alberta, no. so no. They no. have <laughs> to do 24 volunteer hours in high school to pass right. high school. And this is where um, those kids from the Catholic schools <laughs> get bust out to the March for Life and get volunteer and hours. Some and of us volunteered for the NDP, so we still got our hours. But anyway, yeah, no, that's true. The pro-lifers like yeah. actually like <laughs> sign up to do the volunteer um, hours that way. So in Ottawa, we do have an organization called Manifest Change, um, which is a public awareness campaign whose goal is to positively engage men and boys in ending violence against women. Um, I encourage you, if you're in Ottawa, to check them out, pass along the contact information to your friends, partners, neighbors, colleagues, whatever, and get them engaged to learn about how to be a good male ally. Um, and if you don't live in Ottawa, check them out anyway, and maybe... Um, there, there's a whole bunch of resources there. Maybe start up a, a chapter or whatever type of organization in your city um, because I think that this is an important way. And they, they do presentations, I think, at school and they do trainings. So I think that, you know, kind of just creating a community of men and ally, male allies to to talk about these things with other men is important because, you know, men like to hear from other men. Mm. They especially love to hear from themselves. Yeah. And, like, that's fine. Like, in fairness, like, I would like to hear about domestic violence from a woman. I mean, yeah, I think that, I don't know. Because, like, it holds to a certain degree. Like, I understand, like, because, like, if if a, a young boy were to ask me what it's like, what masculinity is and, like, that type of thing, like, I can't answer those questions. Mm -hmm. So I understand. But, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I think... Yeah, I th- I, th- I don't know. It makes me a little bit squeamish when we talk about dividing p- 
people sure. so early on along gender lines. Yep. And I think there's there's still wonderful educators who don't come at it from that like, you know, perspective that could probably do amazing work. Um, but there are s- to some degree still gendered experiences that young men, especially as they enter their teens, like start to like experience. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Stay tuned for Rent and Receipts. Now we're moving on to Rent and Receipts. It's where we each bring a story and share it with the others and then talk about why it's important. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to go first. I read the Johnny Depp Rolling Stone profile, so you didn't have to. (laughs) Uh, in a very length, like long form interview with Rolling Stone, Johnny Depp uh, talks about how he essentially lost his $650 million fortune. Um, it's an interview that was set up by his lawyer in an effort to make him, uh, I guess, kind of look better or tell his side of a story that is being told. He's suing uh, his management, the people who are managing his money for mismanagement and negligence for, um, you know, giving away part of it for not telling him about his financial troubles, all this stuff. Um, so he wants to get ahead of it. He and his lawyers, uh, lawyer rather, um, kind of portray themselves as being like up against Hollywood. They're going to take down Hollywood institutions that are there to just take money and make money off the backs of actors and like enough is enough. Everyone's a coward, but Johnny Depp, who's finally able to stand up to uh, these awful, uh, awful, awful money grabbers. So it's uh, kind of, so that's the objective of the piece from Johnny Depp's perspective. It really goes sideways. Um, the journalist spent 72 hours with Johnny Depp. And um, I would say, I found the profile a little like certainly scathing insofar as like Johnny Depp is clearly a man child who has no grasp on reality, who has, you know, pissed away all of his earnings, has no ability now to even like act properly as to like act with listening to the lines fed to him through an earpiece, which he thinks is fine. He says that, you know, he he is more focused on the sound and the experience around him as an actor that if you can't experience the scene, then then the words have have no have no meaning whatsoever. Just all these grandiose ideas. But, you know, the profile is interesting in light of the Me Too movement and in light of where what, you know, the rest of us are main concern. I'm sure with Johnny Depp is his horrible history as an abuser and as an abuser of Amber Heard. Um, uh, specifically, the prof- profile does talk a bit about that. Doesn't really ask him to comment. Does say that, you know, it's a heavy subject for him. Um, but you know, it does recount his, ex- it, like those, um, those really sad moments, um, for, for Amber Heard in, in some detail. Um, and you know, you hear, um, again, ag- you're reminded again of how she received $7 million payment, um, at the end of that whole episode, at the end of their divorce. Um, They both signed non-disclosure agreements. She gave that $7 million to charity, um, which, you know, is great. She should have kept it is what I've always thought. Like, who the fuck cares? She definitely, like, earned it, so to speak. But um, whatever. She gives it to charity. Meanwhile, here's the laundry list of shit that Johnny Depp did with his money. But he has no qualms. I just, like, I feel like I'm just sharing this so we can all get some shred and fruit out of his, like, demise uh his slow and gradual demise so the the writer the author writes the purchase is listed by the uh, management group read like depp gave his wallet to a tween with add there was 75 million for 14 residences he spent 3 million to shoot his pal hunter s thompson's ashes into the sky with a cannon and a mere 7000 to buy his daughter a couch from the set of keeping up with the kardashians he bought some 70 guitars and 200 art pieces, owned 45 luxury vehicles, and spent 200000 a month on private air travel. He was asked, uh, you know, he was, I, I guess the, the management company reports that he spends 30000 a month on wine. It's insulting to say I spent $30,000 on wine, says Depp. It's far more than that. 
And then he quibbles and says he actually spent $5 million shooting Hunter S. Thompson's body into the sky. <laughs> anyway, he is a really vile person by the sounds of this, completely in a whole other world. And I hope he loses every last fucking dime and never works again. Too much? <laughs> <laughs> um, I read this profile and I was like, this guy's fucked. Um, but this is how I expect Johnny Depp to be. I'm sorry. Like, this is exactly how I expect Johnny Depp to behave. Yeah. To spend that $5 million to shoot Hunter Thompson's whatever body out of the so, sky. I yeah. just expect this from him. But, like, those things, like, aren't new. That stuff came out last year yeah. when the allegations of his abuse against Amber Heard came out. Yeah. Um, and basically they're like, oh, like he can't pay his lawyers because he has no money. And everyone's like, what the fuck? Yeah. And this is why he keeps doing shitty Pirates of the Caribbean 4000 oh, movies. Oh, but he loves them and he artistically quibbles with the Disney writer. <laughs> Fucking shut up. Um, but like Johnny Depp is a very good example of someone with a history of domestic assault with photographic evidence. Mm-hmm. Really who is still shit. doing fine. Yeah. People don't care because he makes mediocre fucking movies that people will still go see because they're catering to the lowest fucking common denominator. Well, there was a time where Johnny Depp was emblematic exactly. of a yeah. generation. Yep. And that, that brand yep. is still so that strong. Edward Scissorhands shit. Yeah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> But if you think about who's looking, uh, who's something, Gilbert Grape, whatever, I forgot. What's eating Gilbert Grape? Thank you. That one. And, you know, him and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And he's done so for like 20 odd years. He's he's worked a lot. He's very prolific in that sense. Yeah. He he came around when independent movies were just like becoming a thing. So he became uh, a center of weirdness mixed with cool don't Mm -hmm. forget he dated gwyneth uh, you know and then he was like the cool bad emotive poetic guy and you know it's he was very brooding yeah yeah, very brooding yeah Yeah. i mean and you get you get all that like he he relishes in that self-image like he is like really like bought that like narrative of himself too and and but like uh, to a toxic degree of like he completely lacks any self-awareness based yeah. on this profile. Yeah. Um, I, th- I found it like on the one end surprising and scathing, but also very sad because he just leads a very sad life and existence. Um, I, I think we, he's definitely a type of person we can, separate the art from the person and still think that they're trash Mm -hmm. i am however very curious as to his relationship with vanessa Paradis and their separation and their children that's where the interesting part is because they were together forever they were together for like 20 years Mm -hmm. and i think they only separated once he got very erratic and very Mm -hmm. irresponsible right and I think that's where that shift happened. And so I don't know if he was necessarily always an abuser or always irresponsible, but something Mm. happened and he just, you know, it's funny because the profile makes no mention of her. No, like not, not even a passing reference. No one has asked. Yeah, possibly. But I mean, it does make some small references, children and, and I, th- I think that's telling, too, because that he could spend 72 hours with someone and that never come up, I think is telling. And, and you do get a sense, though, that his like his and, I, you know, I'm not saying he's he doesn't have addiction issues, but his drug use, his partying, his like yeah. lifestyle, that's always been consistent. But I think there's a certain point where I think like the fame like got to him almost and mm-hmm. like. I think that's part of this whole Me Too thing, I think, has to be like a reckoning for audiences and people who engage in mainstream culture to be like, why do we give so much space for these people to be like so, again, emblematic of a period or emblematic of a generation to the point that like they like can then evade any responsibility and any accountability? You know what I mean? Like I our celebrity focus and, and I, you know, I'm I, you know, I'm part of it, like a part of the problem not shirking or responsibility here, but like, 
I think that's allowed for people to go on um, and engage in this way. I think people have to stop treating celebrities like they know more than you or mm. better than you. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have a talent. Sure. Okay. Just because they followed their talent. Yeah. They became good at it. They made a lot of money. Good on them. But they can be trash human beings and be talented at the same time. Mm -hmm. It does. I'm pretty sure it happens mm -hmm. more often than not. Yeah. But you're right. It's our God complex. Like we <gasps> expect them to be like. We deify them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And like, just like I said, Johnny Depp ended up behaving like a Johnny Depp I thought he behaved like, mm -hmm. especially after the Amber Heard. The Amber Heard stuff, I was like, really? Oh, Oh, yeah, that was oh. I was disappointed because I did think oh. he was like really talented you know? and we grew up with him. And it's like one of those like people you had his poster up in your locker kind of personalities like the not me personally. It wasn't my type, but you know what I mean? Like that. But that like simple, as we're saying. But he also follows the path of this like sad um that he's now a sad caricature of himself. Uh, yeah. Late, late Marlon Brando, late right. Elvis okay. Presley. That's exactly. the comparison of the profile. Exactly. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for bringing that up because that's what I was getting to is that he, he follows this, this arc, yeah. this like, this like legendary arc that just ends up in, in just sad, like just sad. You haven't had one of those in a while. Yeah. yeah but Johnny Depp is it. Can I just add one tiny footnote to this whole thing? Yeah. I learned something very sad in this article. Mm. It's that Penelope Cruz is still like his biggest fucking fan. I know. She she was like, you know, before the Amber Heard stuff, Depp was considered chival publicly chivalrous. When Penelope Cruz told Depp that she was pregnant right before the beginning of the shoot for the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean, she wondered if he if she should drop out of the project. Tra Depp told her that was ridiculous and he protected her every day and by the end she was six months pregnant it's like that's a literally the bare minimum <laughs> what okay girl I'm I'm just gonna like <laughs> Penelope Cruz can wear the hell out of a dress I, I, I will I, give her that she can wear that. and she's a great actress I think she's yeah she is she has all yeah she is yeah, yeah. it's too bad well yeah <laughs> I she could be all those things and I'm like, well, you know. Uh, it's a lesson to me. Have no heroes, have no faves. Yep. Like all your faves are problematic. Yep. I have my faves because for their for what they do. I and I I, f I feel like that's the happy medium. Like they're your faves because you like their songs mm -hmm. or you like their art, but maybe we should start stop, you know, loving them. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So my read and receipts this week is a ProPublica analysis of more than 40,000 civil rights cases, which found that under Secretary of Education, our fave Betsy DeVos, <laughs> the Department of Education has sunk more than 1,200 civil rights investigations that were begun under the Obama administration, which la each lasting more than six months. These cases, which investigated complaints of civil rights violations ranging from discriminatory discipline to sexual violence in school districts and colleges around the country were closed without any finding of wrongdoing or corrective action, often due to insufficient evidence. They also found that the Office for Civil Rights has become much more lenient. Under Obama, 51% of cases that took more than 180 days culminated in findings of civil rights violations or corrective changes. Outcomes on specific topics reflected this pattern. For example, 70% of complaints of discrimination against students with limited proficiency in the English language were upheld under Obama compared to 52% under the current administration. The proportion of complaints substantiated regarding the individualized educational needs of students with disabilities has dropped from 45% to 34% regarding sexual harassment and violence from 41% to 31% and regarding racial harassment from 31% to 21%. This shows the different approaches to civil rights between the administrations. The Obama administration not only looked at individual cases, but also looked at the larger system of desperate treatment and around disability, race, and other factors. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is trying to just get through the most cases as if they're trying to win some sort of goddamn award to get through the most cases ever, 
instead of just trying to actually deal with the issues. Further, the Trump administration isn't examining the larger systemic issues that would actually curb these issues to begin with. So they're just kind of doing a little like here, 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 instead of going further upstream to tackle the system. So I think this is just so fucked and just like just another like something that's like going on kind of under the radar that just doesn't get enough play because mm -hmm. there are so many other shitty things happening in America. And it's worth mentioning that there is a proposal that is likely to be put forth to Congress to combine the Department of Education and the Department of Labor. What? To that makes no fucking sense. Uh, well, we will probably talk about it when it comes out, but like it is fucked. They want to get rid shit. of the actual Department of Education and combine it with other things. So, yeah. Wow. Huh. The U.S. has no regard for humans and their civil rights. That's what they voted for. Well, I think um, and this is really telling insofar as like it's all the like anyway, it's kind of funny because you hear Trump like bemoan the like deep state shit. But like the people who are appointed to review these cases, every civil servant who works in the department, all of them have huge amount of power if they're all collectively appointed or hired at a time by a certain administration. And like, I think they've the Trump administration has been really good about, I mean, they've had trouble hiring people at a higher level. And that's certainly like they have issues with appointments at that level. But I don't, I think they understand that they need to overhaul, like overhaul these spaces where the people reviewing these cases and people hearing these cases um, probably were recent appointees and have, were given certain directives. And like, that's all quite, um, quite, chilling like to think about that um but even but if they are just like career bureaucrats they are likely just being told what to do sure and you know the, the thing is is that like to do well the people above them aren't the people above them will be partisan appointees yeah, sure and, like yeah know, so that's yeah, so huge impact exactly yeah. and like to deal with the more systemic issues those that type of research and cases they take a long time to examine and to make sure that you're making the right decision. And if you're just trying to get through as much as many cases as possible, you're not going to take that time mm -hmm. because you just want to do everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> I, I'm not shocked by any of this. Like, I, I don't know what else to say except, well, that's what they got. That's what they voted for. Yeah. And if they want to change it, November's around the corner. Yeah. So... I mean, but <laughs> also, <laughs> I will be talking about this, I'm sure. Never underestimate the Democrats to fuck up a good lead. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> it's true. Okay. Am I next? Are we done? Wait, are we done? Okay, okay. Um, so my rent and receipts has to do with the controversy over what Melania Trump wore to um, visit uh, the border in Texas. So in Teen Vogue, Teen Vogue, I, th I think really, really, when they come out with stuff, they just do it all. They just provide great insight sometimes. Are you going to say something about Lauren Duca? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, except for Lauren Duca. <laughs> <laughs> Because fuck her. <laughs> the end. And she goes back to her breathing. <laughs> okay. So Melania Trump. On June 21st, uh, First Lady Melania Trump was seen at Air Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland on her way to visit detained immigrant children. She wore a Zara jacket that had, quote, I really don't care, do you? End quote, written on the back, causing an instant social media firestorm over her tone-deaf outfit choice. Melania Trump must know that her fashion choices can cause a stir. In 2016, when she wrote, she wore a, quote, pussy bow blouse <laughs> to the presidential debate just weeks after her husband was caught on tape bragging about how much she could grab women by the pussy, it put the media in a tailspin of conspiracy theories. And while we 
never really found out why she wore it, the sartorial choice was in the top headline for days. As writer Liz Blank explains so succinctly in a tweet, Melania's decision to wear a cohesive and relevant message written in large print on her back and then to pretend that we shouldn't care about what it says is purposeful. She wrote, quote, this is 100% bait. This is an effective strategy to get the media to criticize her wardrobe so that they can criticize the media for criticizing her wardrobe and delegitimize us as fake news, end quote. And I just, I've been thinking a lot about Donald Trump and his relationship to media and how he always sort of does this. Every every tweet is an a media sort of expose where he somehow exposes the media for them being fake, which replaces him as the only truth teller and I think that has been craftily done since 2016 and a lot of the media both Canadian and American media don't know how to deal with it or don't know what he's doing and I think that this Teen Vogue piece and especially Liz Plank's tweet just succinctly summed up the whole fucking purpose and that's why I thought that this was just an excellent piece. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, that's a really, really good characterization of what they're doing. I I tend to view it more as like chaos theory where they're just trying to like fuck everything up and just try to dominate the headlines because they, <laughs> they, they just don't care whether it's good press or bad press, they mm. just want people to see. Yeah, that's part of it too, right? Like that's, I think, I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive. No. I think they work together. And um, that chaos, like creating that chaos, creating that doubt, planting and germinating and tending to that seed of doubt is exactly the way they do it. Mm. And since, and now we're in a space where media is so in such a tailspin right now, just traditional media especially, um, that they spend half the time putting out fires, fires that the Trump administration creates so that they don't talk about this stuff, that we like the stuff on your rent and receipts, for example. So it's... And I think media falls for it every single time. Yeah, and like I think they're put in a tough spot where they're like on the one hand trying to report what's going on in the underbelly of the beast, but also they have to report on what the president is saying. And so that stuff, the day-to-day stuff gets the most traction because that's what those fucking idiots who don't read the news regularly or who just like don't care that much Mm -hmm. want to read. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it too is being driven by, you know, (laughs) all they have to do is control so what's trending that's like that is the power of it because mm-hmm. everybody's the money of it yeah everybody follows traditional media will follow other media outlets you'll see the think pieces coming out mm-hmm. and i think that that's how that's why he uses twitter so much is because he can control the trending co- mm-hmm. topics yeah what i find really interesting though is that like from an efficiency and effectiveness standpoint, the chaos doesn't really work because they create chaos and then the media gloms onto it and continues asking about it, but then they have to like constantly try to like reframe and rejig their own messaging and try to see what is gonna stick. Like with the yeah. the migrant thing, they were like, It's the Democrats' fault. It's is not our policy. Yeah. It's not a policy because it doesn't exist. Oh, what is our policy? Like mm-hmm. they just threw right. everything yeah. out there. Yeah. And then they're kind of left scrambling because there's not a coherent message. And I, that creates more work for them. Yeah. And for I don't s- know. I think because like they don't have an interest in clarifying the message either because they tell enough varied lies that it almost sounds like. Well, they can't like to their audience who doesn't who isn't bothered to learn differently. And they've already undermined everything the mainstream media writes so that for people hearing 
a shifting story, they'll just assume, yeah, in fact, it was a Democrat's fault. There was a, like all these things can be true because ev- it's the opposite of what the mainstream media is reporting. Yeah. Um, and like that's that's in that sense consistent. The me- the fake news bit is the most consistent part of it all. Mm-hmm. And that's all they need to fall back on. I mm-hmm. mean, so Trump tweeted um, I really don't care. Do you written on the back of Melania's jacket refers to fake news media. Melania has learned how dishonest they are and she truly no longer cares, which I think is really funny. Of course. Uh, yeah. Which is in a direct contrast to what her spokesperson put out and yeah. said, oh, it's just a jacket. It doesn't it's mean just a jacket. Yeah. Yeah. So which one yeah. is it? Yeah. Does it is it about the fake news? Is it about nothing? Is it about like what? doesn't matter all you need to know it's is that the mainstream media is reporting that it's about migrant is wrong and they're just vilifying her I and you know a lot of people will believe that i think a lot of i think the way to actually follow these things is to think of it as an evolution of the message mm. and so and then so you can see who does what when and so one of the things I always think of, okay, so, and, and I also have another point to this, which is Melania is no innocent, nope. you know, bystander nope. of like a Ivanka. mean, right, of a mean and controlling husband. Not nope. just complicit, but culpable. Yes, exactly, exactly. And she uses fashion to do it. Yeah. And she's been doing that. Mm. Like, I forgot about the the pussy tie or whatever. Yeah, and then oh. the stilettos um, going, going to visit um, flood victims, flood victims right, in right, Texas. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, the fact that she's worn white, which is like suffragette color, and like weirdly, like she's worn what where I will say like where her like clothing politics are always bizarre is when like um, a head of state mm. comes over and she doesn't wear clothes from that country she doesn't always but michelle obama made a very was very conscious to like but is michelle was michelle i thought michelle was like one of the first to do that or am i going or is it jackie o or i don't know how long that tradition has been Mm, in place um but yeah you're right she does wear mainly european designers the big names the valentinos the gucci's the ones that everybody man, has Zara, a t-shirt of. Zara of all places. Like, how'd you even know that code existed? It was also from, like, three years ago. Like, where'd they find it? But what's really, what kind of also That's really interesting, interesting it's though. Like, it it's like, from oh. Zara. We're, I was I just it was like, one of her staffers, and then she just, like, She was like, it. I like it, take it off, we're doing this. But also what, like, bothers me about it is that it furthers the idea that not caring is cool. Yeah. Ah. Like, some people, like, are just so privileged that they're like, oh, I don't need to know about what's going on. So do on. you think, that's a great point. So do you think that part of it then was part of a, call, a dog whistle to Trump supporters? Because the media was talking about how they don't care. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah that, that I don't care just like the rest of Americans don't care. I mean, I think that's yeah. sort of the underlying statement. Just uh, the underlying critique. Like I don't believe what they say. Yeah, I don't yeah, believe. Yeah. I mean, I think. I, yeah, I think that that that's certainly part of it. Um, it's been pretty upsetting to hear what some Trump supporters actually do have to say. You know about the that these aren't innocent parties. And I mean, you well, got Hillary was running wrong. around talking about <laughs> child actors. Hillary was not wrong when she called them deplorables. Yeah. <laughs> I listen. I give Hillary props when she. You know, I give her her. Her her shine when she deserves it. I yeah. or I feel she deserves it. I'm very ambivalent with Hillary. <laughs> sometimes I hate her. Sometimes I like her. I feel, I that. I feel that. Yeah. To yeah. to Aaron's comment though about like you know it's the the not caring attitude. Yeah. I think my the funniest critique that I saw of the jacket was that it's such a wine mom logo expression you know like don't oh talk to me before i had my coffee God, like all yes. those like weird expressions yeah if the if, ones you find the on glass like is empty pinterest fill it. <laughs> the ones you find on pinterest yeah yeah, yeah. oh my gosh yeah. it's such a pinterest jacket you know like it's like those weird like slogans <laughs> like i don't care i just need wine like that's that's her <laughs> it's <mom>. very <laughs> it's very s- hashtag sorry not sorry isn't it Oof. yeah uh, I want to say yes, but also no. 
Like, I find sorry, not sorry, at least, like, is clever. Oh, I see what you're saying. Instead of I don't care, do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, no. some thought when I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry. saying that the sentiment sure. is there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought I am going to pay attention to, oh, first of all, anybody who says fashion doesn't matter. Fuck mm-hmm. you. I think we've had mm-hmm. many times on this podcast. It's a form of expression. Exactly. Clearly. It's a way to words communicate no without yeah. saying a word. Yeah. Right. Especially so, as one of the most photographed women in the world. Exactly. So why wouldn't you say something? Anyway. <laughs> but I like that now we know we have proof that Melania is culpable and she's not just some poor little rich girl because I'm so sick of that. I really am. And I won't even go into that argument, but, you know, I'm sure there'll be time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does it for this week. You can follow us on social media on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod on Facebook.com slash Bad and B Podcast and email us at Bad and B Pod at gmail.com. Bye. Bye. My bitch is bad and bullshit. <laughs>